Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Creedal. Before I uh, go into the content for today's episode, though, I want to apologize. If you were monitoring this feed last week, you may have noticed that for several days, there was a 48-second audio clip uh, reminding you of the advanced screening for Double Bondsman. Now, maybe you tuned into the advanced screening, and if so, that's great. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, But that was meant to be released on the feed for another one of my podcasts. I don't think I've talked about it on this feed before, but this podcast is called Real Life, R-E-E-L, get it? Uh, and it's about a, uh, a short film and what it's like to make a short film. So it's an eight-part series in which I partner with the director, the cast, and the crew. I do a ton of interviews. I do on-the-ground audio from the shoot itself and talk about all the steps of making a movie and, and what it's like. So filmmaking and films are a big interest of mine. Uh, and pop culture as well. So I thought this would be a really fun project to do, and it, it has been, but it's also been one that's taken up, you know, the better part of a year uh, of of time to do. So anyway, real life, R-E-E-L, was culminating in the advanced screening of the actual short film whose creation it was documenting. So that's what that was about last week. Like I said, maybe you tuned in and saw it, and if so, that's great. I hope you enjoyed it. If that sounds interesting to you, by the way, uh, go ahead and listen to real life, R-E-E-L, life wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I think there are a couple of other smaller podcasts that are named that, but um, you'll know it's real life because it's a red background. It's kind of movie theater seats. And then the little creedal, the the creedal logo, the church is in the corner of the podcast art. So real life, wherever you get your podcasts. I'll also link it in the show notes here if that sounds interesting to you. But once again, I apologize for posting on the wrong feed. The the bummer is too, that I posted that on the, the creedal feed instead of the real life feed. So my real life listeners didn't get that reminder. So anyway, just an epic fail all around on my part. Apologies. Um, But today I have for you an introduction to the mass really for beginners. So this might be something that that you will enjoy. And I hope that there are at least some nuggets you can take away from I also would suggest that that this is something that you could send to people who have questions about the mass or who want to know, you know, why are Catholics always going to mass or what exactly happens in the mass? Um, I dive into a lot of those questions. And again, it's really it's a high level, right? You can only do so much in 30 minutes or so. And literally books have been written about this and you could, you could fill the world with pages about the mass and still not actually plumb the depths of what is going on there and what Christ has done for us. But in 30 minutes, I try to just give a very high level overview. So this might be, might be good um, for you to send to friends who have questions about it as well. So I encourage you to do that. Uh, and thank you for listening to the show. Uh, I also will say that over the coming weeks and months, I have some really exciting interviews lined up. Uh, and I'm I'm re- just really excited to to sit down with these men and women who are doing fantastic work in the in the world of theology and culture, and, and just pick their brain about what's going on and how we as Catholics can better engage uh, with the culture using our theology. So thanks for listening to Creedal. Thanks for supporting our mission. Uh, if you like this, let me know. Zach at creedalpodcast.com. Without further ado, here is today's episode. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Creedal Theology and Culture. I want to take a few minutes today to talk about the importance of the Mass. The Mass, of course, the religious service to many people. It's more than a a religious service, but to many people, it's a religious service, and it's the religious service that Catholics go to on every Sunday and every Holy Day of Obligation. But it's a lot more than that, and I want to talk about exactly what the Mass is, what the theology of the Mass represents. We can only scratch the surface in this 25-30 minute episode, of course, but I do want to talk about some of these themes and ideas that are really important for us to understand as Catholics. What is the Mass? 
It is important to remember at the outset that the Mass isn't simply a prayer service or a time of meditation or even a time of fellowship. There are elements of all of those things within one Mass, but it's not a single one of them. And it's also a lot more than all of them. It's an act of liturgy fundamentally, a word that means the work of the people. But most importantly, the Mass is the representation of the Paschal sacrifice. We'll talk more about that word representation. But the Paschal sacrifice is that greatest of all events in human history in which the Lamb of God was crucified for our sins and the sins of the whole world, rose again from the dead, and ascended into heaven. In the Mass, we talk about this with the fancy Greek word anamnesis, which means to recall and yet make present. And that's what the Mass does. Again, we'll talk about that and the representation of the Paschal sacrifice. But this word anamnesis means that every Mass points us to Calvary. It makes us remember Calvary, it commemorates Calvary, but it also makes Calvary present. That anamnesis word specifically points to the part of the Eucharistic prayer in which the faithful actually enter into the Paschal mystery. So, Let's talk a little bit more about the Mass. There's an awful lot of sitting and standing and kneeling, and if someone walked off the street and knew nothing about Catholicism, that might be the first thing that struck them. Why are all these people sitting and standing and kneeling and praying and shouting and singing? There's something else to remember, too. That Paschal sacrifice of the Mass is something that is truly physically real. We don't worship Jesus as an ethereal spirit or a phantasm or a ghost. We worship him as the incarnate Son of God as God literally made man who became flesh. He is truly physically real. And his sacrifice is truly and physically real. The word incarnation or incarnational means in the flesh. Think of in and carnitas, right? Like, like flesh or like the carnitas burrito at Chipotle. Carnitas is meat. So Jesus came in the meat or in the flesh. He really came and dwelt among us and really died a real death among us and rose again in a bodily resurrection. And in the mass, we remember Jesus's death, his resurrection and his ascension in a real and bodily way. And we do that by how else? Using our bodies. We stand with our bodies. We sit, we kneel, we speak, we sing, we bow, we genuflect down on one knee and all the other aspects of the mass. And we do these things as a physical participation, the work of the people in this representation of the Paschal sacrifice. We are recalling and making present the Paschal sacrifice. Now let's talk about what happens in the Mass. Well, in the very beginning of the Mass, you'll walk in and you'll sing a song probably, if it's at least a, if it's a high Mass, uh, and you'll see the, the crucifer carry the crucifix, the cross with Jesus on it, down the, normally the center aisle. He might be followed by other altar servers, uh, maybe some deacons, maybe a choir, and finally a priest, or maybe even more than one priest if you're at a big parish. And everyone goes up to the front, and then very shortly after that, almost immediately, we go into the penitential act. Now, the penitential act is the part of the Mass in which we, the faithful, express to God our unworthiness, our sinfulness, our need for redemption, and we ask each other to pray for God's mercy for us. We ask each other to pray for God's forgiveness. Now, why do we do this? It's done for a very simple reason. We, all of us, need God's mercy. And the penitential act actually has its roots in ancient Israel's liturgical practices. You can find references to its opening line, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, in the Pentateuch, specifically Leviticus. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, but I'm talking here about Leviticus, which is in the Pentateuch, and in the prophets, specifically Nehemiah, Daniel, and Isaiah. 
There's also Matthew chapter 5 in part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus himself instructs people to confess to their brothers and sisters before offering sacrifices. The mask is, as I said, the representation of the ultimate Paschal sacrifice, and so we confess our sins to one another and to Almighty God at the very beginning of that sacrifice. And then after the penitential act, we continue on into the liturgy of the Word. This is really the first half of the Mass. And the liturgy of the Word is often misunderstood. We think, oh yeah, liturgy of the Word, this is where we hear some words said, right? We'll hear the Word read to us, the Word being the Bible. We'll maybe hear some words preached to us in the homily, right? And that partially gets at what's going on in the liturgy of the Word, but really only partially, because it's not the liturgy of the Word, lowercase, nor is it the liturgy of words, plural, but rather it is the liturgy of the word, capitalized. The liturgy of the word. In Greek, we would say the logos. And the word logos appears in scripture several times, but most prominently perhaps in John chapter 1, verse 1, in which the apostle writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That word logos. Now in Greek, the word logos really refers to the ordering principle of the universe or the thing around which everything else coheres or ties together or makes sense. Now, this is elaborated a little bit more in Colossians chapter 1 when Paul, St. Paul, describes Jesus Christ as he in whom all things hold together. Jesus Christ is the incarnate logos. So in the liturgy of the word, we first read God's written word and we reflect on the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Now, Christianity and Judaism before it, they're both religions of the book. We place a premium on the word because God himself has revealed himself to us through written word, through the word, capital W, the word. That's the word of Holy Scripture in its written form, and it's Jesus Christ in its incarnate form, the word of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 talks about this word-centric character of Christianity and Judaism. When St. Paul writes, faith comes through hearing. So because faith comes through hearing, we are a people of the book, we are a people of the word, and we have the liturgy of the word. So what does the liturgy of the word look like? Well, it's the part of the Mass in which we hear the Old Testament proclaimed. So there's a reading from the Old Testament. We hear a psalm of praise, repentance, or deliverance prayed. Normally we sing it. We hear a New Testament epistle taught. And then we stand for the reading of the word of the incarnate word himself, one of the Gospels. It's either from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but there's always a gospel reading. Why? Because we want to hear about the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. We want to hear what he directly has to say to us. And then, of course, we're seated for the homily in which that word is proclaimed to us by a man who has received the laying on of hands, who is specifically chartered to continue in the apostles' teaching. You see, every Catholic priest can trace his apostolic lineage, his priestly lineage, to the original apostles. Jesus had 12 disciples. Judas betrayed Jesus. There were 11 left. And then Matthias replaced Judas in the book of Acts. And then Paul, of course, is commissioned by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. So ultimately, there are 13 apostles, right? The original 12 minus Judas plus Matthias and Paul. All of these disciples received the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, either in the upper room at Pentecost for Matthias and the other 11, or on the road to Damascus in the case of Saul. But they all received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the priestly bishop ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then they passed that ministry on to their successors. For example, Paul lays hands on Timothy, and Timothy becomes a successor, a direct successor of St. Paul. 
every Catholic priest a day can trace his lineage to those people. And so when we hear the priest give the homily, we are really hearing a successor of the apostles deliver the word to us in an incarnational way. He is using his tongue to speak to us the words of truth that are contained in scripture. And that has bearing too on what the priest does later on, but we'll get to the Eucharistic, uh, the, the Eucharist, the, the liturgy of the Eucharist in the second part of the Mass. After the liturgy of the Word, though, there's an offering. This precedes the preparation or the uh, presentation that is directly before the Eucharistic prayer. In the offering, what happens is the people come forward. In some cases, the people, sometimes the, the gifts are already there, the gifts being the bread and wine that will become the body and blood of Christ. But in some celebrations of the Mass, sometimes in Latin Rite churches, very prominently in Eastern Catholic liturgies, the faithful will actually bring bread and wine down the aisle to the altar and give it to the priest. Now, this reminds us that God takes our earthly realities that we offer up to him, our, our very ordinary things, and he makes them extraordinary. He takes our earthly things and he makes them heavenly. That's what God does in the liturgy of the Eucharist. This is why, by the way, at the beginning, we hear the priest say, Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you, fruit of the earth and work of human hands. It will become for us the bread of life. There's a similar prayer, of course, for the, the wine that becomes the blood of Jesus Christ. But it's those prayers that remind us that God is doing something amazing here. It's not strictly speaking miraculous because a miracle involves, think of the, the term, the, the word mirage. A miracle involves something that you see, right? A, a miracle can be um, something that we see. We don't necessarily perceive the change in substance that happens in the Eucharist, but it's still something amazing. And in a way, it's something more amazing because, and it requires a lot of faith for us to grasp this mystery. But there's something incredible going on here not incredible in the sense that we can't actually believe it, but really I just mean amazing, something that, something that defies our human understanding or transcends our human understanding in which the earthly, ordinary things that we bring to God are transformed into heavenly realities. Now, there's something deeper that this points to in Catholic theology as well, that we are invited to enter into the very mystery of God and that we in our own lives can offer up our ordinariness and have those ordinary things be transformed by Christ. There's a lot of thinking out there in Christianity, largely, even in Catholicism, unfortunately, this has infected us. There's a lot of thinking that teaches us that if we experience God's favor, then our lives will be easy. We'll have a lot of money. We'll have a lot of career success. We'll have a lot of recognition and maybe even a lot of power. Those are all signs of God's favor. So this false teaching goes. But actually, in Catholic teaching, we have such a theology of suffering that says God is close to the brokenhearted. And in a very counterintuitive way, but in a beautiful, grace-filled way, God is especially close to the brokenhearted. And so to experience suffering, to experience ordinariness, to experience uh, mundane things is in fact to experience God's favor because we are invited to enter into God's grace and the mysteries of Christ more fully, to have those ordinary things, to have those sufferings transformed, even redeemed, especially redeemed by Christ. Now, the liturgy of the Eucharist continues after the presentation of the gifts, after what we call the prefatory prayers. And the liturgy of the Eucharist continues in which we actually experience the representation of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, many Protestants today criticize the Catholic Church for taking Jesus' words too literally when he says, this is my body and this is my blood. But in fact, 
we take it exactly the way he intended it. So we'll talk about that in just a minute, but I do want to say at the, at the outset of this section that the Second Vatican Council, its document Lumen Gentium, describes the Mass as the source and the summit of the Christian life. And it's pre precisely because of this Eucharistic presence, this moment in which Jesus offers himself for us, in which we, in which we can actually receive Jesus, that the Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council calls it that. So we enter into the liturgy of the Eucharist. We've already heard the Logos proclaimed in the liturgy of the Word. And now we get to witness the Logos enter our midst in an incarnational sense as these ordinary earthly elements of bread and wine truly and substantially become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This is absolutely amazing. Now, let's talk about this symbol issue, right? Do we take this, do we take Jesus' words too seriously when he says, this is my body and this is my blood? I don't think so. Look at John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus is talking about the Israelites eating heaven-sent manna in the desert, right? The Israelites, while they were fleeing uh, bondage in Egypt and going to the promised land, are stuck in the desert and they have nothing to eat. So God saves them by sending down literal bread from heaven called manna. Now, Jesus re recalls this story from the Exodus, and then he describes himself as the true bread from heaven. So that's the first thing. He's comparing himself to actual physical bread already. Now, the crowd murmurs here, and they basically question his claim that he has come down from heaven because, of course, that has implications about who Jesus is claiming to be. If he's coming down from heaven, is he saying he's divine? Now, here Jesus doubles down, though, when he faces some pushback from here. And he says, no, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, this is especially provocative, and it does indeed provoke some more grumbling from among the crowd who then ask, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? This sounds pretty crazy, right? Now, Jesus could have responded and said, guys, it's a metaphor. I'm speaking symbolically. But instead, he triples down. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And this is such a difficult thing to believe that John, the Apostle John, who's writing this book, this gospel, he tells us in verse 66 of chapter 6 that many of his disciples drew back and no longer walked with him. Now, this is not referring to the 12 disciples. This is referring to the other people that have been following Jesus who probably up until that point would have associated themselves with Jesus and said, yeah, I'm a, I'm a disciple of Jesus. He's a great teacher. But this is a bridge too far. They can't take this one. So Jesus then turns to the 12, the 12 disciples who remain, and he says, are you also going to go? And Peter, who at this point is showing himself to be the leader of the 12, despite his, uh, his errors, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, I don't know about you, but the first several times I read that passage, I really keyed in on Jesus's very literal language about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. In fact, the words that he uses there, the Aramaic words that he uses there are very literal words that are, are visceral almost in the way that they describe the act of eating or gnawing on flesh. So this is not metaphorical or poetic language to begin with. But I really keyed in on those aspects and thought, wow, this is really, it's a, it's a hard sell to say that this is simply a metaphor. What I didn't key in on is, is Peter's response to Jesus when Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. Or if I did think about it, I really was just thinking, yeah, Peter's recognizing that Jesus is the son of God. And so he's saying, of course, you have the words of eternal life. So where else are we going to go? But think about what Peter says. You have the words of eternal life. This is right after Jesus has spoken words 
that are scandalizing to his other followers. So scandalizing, in fact, that his other followers flee. But to Peter, to Peter, and to the rest of the 12 who stay, this is testament, a testament that Jesus has the words of eternal life. So this actually is a way that strengthens the faith of the disciples in a way, right? It may be hard for them to understand, the reality of the Eucharist uh, certainly transcends our simple understanding. We can only grasp at it. But to Peter, Jesus has the words of eternal life, despite the fact, or even maybe even because, of Jesus' radical claims here. The early church also, quite obviously, didn't look at this as only a symbol. Uh, even in the time of Paul's ministry in 1 Corinthians 11, he warns against partaking in the Eucharist unworthily. This issue is coming to the forefront again as the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops debates uh, the issue of Eucharistic discipline and who can and who cannot receive the Eucharist and who should and should not be admitted to uh, to the Supper of the Lamb. And this is being misinterpreted, of course, in many media circles because from the outside looking in to a non-Catholic, the Eucharist is simply a, a family meal, right? It's something that you go to church to do. It's a private matter, but actually far from it. The Eucharist is the way in which we are united with Christ. It's the way in which Christ incorporates us into his mystical body more than a mere symbol. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, you cannot partake of it unworthily. If you do, you are drinking your own damnation. It's that big of a deal. And the early fathers of the church are also unanimous on this point as well. It's not a mere symbol. Right? The idea of it being a symbol did not emerge until uh, over a thousand years later, at least not in any way that had serious purchase. Well over a thousand years later. It is also not something, something that it's not something something that represents the body and blood of our Lord, right? It is actually the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Eucharist is how we become partakers of the divine nature, just as Jesus commanded us to. We eat and drink the body and blood of the God become man, Jesus Christ, because in that way he truly substantially enters into our life. Let me refer you back to this idea of our incarnational faith, right? God actually becomes man for us. He becomes man. He enters into our humility, our brokenness, our lowliness, our, our, our very humanity so that he can die for us. And when he does that, he offers himself for us as the ultimate lamb that we can then consume and enter into fellowship with. So this is, a, this is another good question, though. Why is Jesus crucified over and over again in the sacrifice of the Mass? Because if we do believe that Jesus is God-made man, then Jesus' sacrifice, his Paschal sacrifice as the Passover lamb, has to be good for all time. Why? Because God is infinitely powerful, right? If God is infinitely powerful, then God's sacrifice is infinitely powerful and extends across all time. Some critics of Catholic Eucharistic theology who misunderstand the Eucharistic theology, and specifically the theology of the Mass, say that we are guilty of crucifying Jesus over and over again. And to them, that's idolatry because we're actually worshiping something that isn't Jesus for one, but also it reflects a lack of understanding of the sufficiency of Christ's atonement, right? But on the other hand, we do, in fact, absolutely affirm the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. Christ's sacrifice was good enough to save the whole world, not even just from that point forward in time, but from that point backward in time as well. Christ's sacrifice is so powerful and so infinite that it transcends time itself. It is the way in which the entire world is saved. So let's go back to this idea of re-sacrificing Christ. The Mass is not the re-sacrifice of Christ. That's a common misunderstanding, but it's definitely a serious one. 
It's a huge misrepresentation or misunderstanding of what's going on. Rather, the Mass is a representation of Christ's sacrifice. The Catechism of the Catholic Church is very clear on this. Quote, when the church celebrates the Eucharist, she commemorates Christ's Passover, and it is made present. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. We're not re-sacrificing. In fact, our insistence that it is one single sacrifice actually points to the, to the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. We say, no, this is one sacrifice. And we say that because the one sacrifice is all we need. But if Christ's sacrifice is the source and the summit of everything that we hold dear, the source and summit of the entire Christian life, why wouldn't we continue to, re to, to represent it in our liturgies? Recall that word anamnesis, to recall and to make present. That is really to re-present, right? To make it present again in our midst. It's not to reenact it simply. That would just be a dramatic show. It's not to re-sacrifice, but it is to make that sacrifice present again. So in the Mass, when we have this representation, this moment of anamnesis where we recall and make present at the same time, what we are doing is we are being transported to Calvary, to the single sacrifice of Jesus Christ that was sufficient for all time and all eternity. And we get to be there. And then we also get to receive Jesus Christ himself when we partake of the Eucharist. That's a beautiful thing. It's absolutely beautiful. Now, another thing that people who aren't familiar with the Mass, or maybe some who are, might ask is, where is the Mass in the Bible? It's a fair question, right? The Bible is uh, our, our source of, um, of direct revelation from God. But the Mass is actually all throughout the Bible, right? There's no single place in the Bible where you'll find the Roman Missal for the Latin Rite. But what we do in the Mass is all throughout the Bible. We've already talked about manna in the desert, where the Israelites fed on heavenly bread and survived, of course, being saved by God in their flee in their trip from bondage, their exodus from bondage in Egypt. There's also, of course, the Passover, a very significant passage in the, the salvation of the uh, Jewish people, uh, a covenant moment for the Jewish people, wherein the Israelites are delivered from death, from bondage, by the sacrifice of an unblemished lamb. And perhaps most crucially in this story, they sacrifice the unblemished lamb, and it does have to be an unblemished lamb, the best of their of the of their uh, of their uh, their herd. And they actually then consume the lamb. They actually eat the lamb. The Hebrew word for Passover is Pascha, which is where we get our description of Christ's death as the ultimate Paschal sacrifice, because Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb. But even the architecture of our parishes, we have a tabernacle in there, especially the altar in some, in some, in many parishes, really, uh, the way the whole nave is set up where the people sit. It's based in large part upon the setup of the Old Testament and the tabernacle, right? It's not to say that the Old Covenant is still intact. The New Covenant supersedes the Old Covenant. But the ways in which we worship God uh, are reflected or reflects, reflections of what we find in the Old Testament. But we do it uh, in the New Covenant. Almost every part of the spoken liturgy is found in Scripture, right? There's obviously the multiple Scripture readings in the Liturgy of the Word that we talked about, an Old Testament reading, a Psalm, a New Testament reading, and separate from that, a Gospel reading, and the homily on top of that. All of those things are found in Scripture, many of them just directly from Scripture. Uh, we talked about the penitential act, the words of the uh, Eucharist itself, um, also extensively taken from Scripture. So Scripture is weaved throughout the entire Mass. And look at the book of Revelation in the Bible. So much of the imagery there is echoed in the Mass. Look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, for example, where the angels are gathered around the throne singing the Sanctus, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, God of hosts. 
In Revelation chapter 5, Jesus appears as the lamb who was slain. The words of institution, this is my body, this is my blood, are taken directly from the synoptic gospels and the words of Jesus himself. And these are only a few examples of where the mass is found in scripture. But if you want a more in-depth examination of that, I highly encourage you to check out Scott Hahn's book, The Lamb's Supper, because what he does, he goes through the entire form of the mass and ties it to scripture with a particular emphasis on the book of Revelation and makes really a, a really solid argument for, for what it is and where it's coming from and why you should go. And speaking of why you should go, the final thing I'll say in this discussion is that you should go to mass. The mass is the highest form of prayer. But even more than that, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he wants you to enter into the divine life. He is pouring himself out continually for you and for me. Every Mass represents the sacrifice of Christ, and Jesus wants us to turn to him and embrace him and partake in his divine life. So when you attend Mass, do so reverently. Know that Jesus is really there. Believe that he is really there. Think about this, the God of the universe, loves you, is madly pursuing you, and is making himself present to you really, truly, and substantially at every single Mass. He desires you. So remember that and go to Mass, not just on the Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation, although certainly those, but whenever you have a free moment. If you live in America, there's a really good chance that you are within 20 minutes of a parish, and there's a really good chance that that parish has Mass five days a week. So pick some times and make the commitment to go to Mass because Jesus is waiting for you. Thanks for watching this or listening to this episode of Creedle. If you liked it, please subscribe either to the podcast or to the YouTube channel. Uh, you can find me on YouTube if you're listening to this, or if you're watching this, you can find me on any podcast player where you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Overcast, the list goes on. Uh, but send me a note uh, with any feedback that you have, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedlepodcast.com. If you like this content that I'm doing, let me know. If you want specific content, you have a question that you want an answer to, also let me know. I love engaging with listeners and answering specific questions or helping them work through challenges in their faith. Um, this faith is worth diving into. Uh, I became Catholic six years ago and have never looked back. Uh, the, it, it truly has been the best decision of my life. Uh, I hope that if you're watching this, you're there with me as a Catholic. But if you're not, I want you to think about it and ask me any questions you have about the Catholic faith. I'd be more than happy to answer you, um, either in a podcast or a clip or just in a personal email. So send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalpodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you.